Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. This is our first podcast for 2022. So the first thing I would like to say is obviously Happy New Year. Today we have our, our quarterly insight podcast. So if you want to follow what we are going through please download the Insight Quarterly Market Review. Uh, and of course, with me today, we have the Macro A-Team as ever. So we have uh, Daniel Murray, Stefan Gerlach, Gianluigi Manrosato, Joaquin Tool, and our special guest, uh, Paul Temperton. The topic or the front page of our Quarterly Insight this time around is brighter outlook after the fourth wave. Of course, over the course of, uh, I guess, from Thanksgiving onwards, uh, December and early January, um, we've had uh, Omicron continues to ripple through the population um, and uh, really no no stopping it this time. So uh, hopefully, first of all, the, all of you uh, stay safe. Within the overview section, we talk about the, the fourth wave and, and what that impact will be. Uh, but you know, I'll say slightly more optimistic outlook post Omicron, where we talk a little bit about savings and spending and what we think they will do to economic growth in the coming year. So, um, Daniel, uh, maybe you could enlighten us a bit. Thanks, Mose. I mean, obviously, um, there is some uncertainty around Omicron, but for the year as a whole, we remain reasonably optimistic um, for some of the reasons we'll get on to in a moment. I think before we get there, it's just worth noting that um, you know, Omicron seems less um, likely to damage the economic trajectory. And that's partly just simply because the world is getting more accustomed to dealing with COVID and uh, it's just becoming a bit more resilient in terms of the reaction to it. We, you know, this has gone on now for nearly two years and we've all just um, adjusted somewhat to, uh, to living with it. The second thing, of course, is to note that um, the evidence suggests that Omicron is less dangerous than earlier variants. And... Uh, uh, you know, perhaps this is a feature of each subsequent wave that it will be um, slightly less uh, potent. And uh, so, you know, there are fewer hospitalizations relative to the number of cases, even though there are a large number of cases. Um, and so that's also helping to ease concerns about the longer term impact, although there will, of course, be some shorter term impact. In terms of, you know, why we remain optimistic about growth, despite the sort of short term uncertainty over COVID, um, you know, there's a few things that matter. Um, the first thing that um, that we note and that uh, other people also noted is that you know, actually the outlook for consumption is pretty good. And consumption in most developed uh, uh, economies is sort of 60 to 70 percent of total output. So uh, it's a very significant share and clearly drives um, what's happening in the aggregate with regard to GDP. Um, and uh, yeah, part of this, we think, is just going to be a bounce back uh, as spending on things like services um, improves as confidence grows and people just actually return to some sort of normality. So sectors such as entertainment, travel, uh, um, live events, those sorts of things, we think people are going to want to start to spend their money on again. And of course, a notable feature of the pandemic is that um, actually uh, governments spent large amounts of money supporting economies. And uh, um, that has uh, resulted in the flip side, which is that savings rates have gone up very sharply. And we've seen a very large increase in accumulated savings. Um, and that uh, we think is going to support um, consumption in the months ahead and through the year. Um, add to that the fact that policy has also helped support asset prices and you get a bit of a wealth effect there. 
Um, and overall, actually, we think that the, the outlook for consumption is pretty good. So uh, I think overall, that strong consumption as a driver of aggregate growth is, is going to be a really important feature of 2022. I think, uh, Daniel, you, you and I recall, you know, very early on in our careers, you know, uh, people would certainly often say to us, never bet, bet against the US consumer. And I certainly think that um, that is definitely the stance we are taking uh, in uh, in 2022. Um so the other sort of key feature, certainly over the last six to 12 months, has been the inflation story. And, and uh, even now, um, we, we, you know, the Fed, and it's become, I guess, a bit of a political hot potato uh, issue as well, with certainly in, in recent elections, we saw the Democrats suffering a little bit as a result of that higher inflation. It was seemed to be an election topic developing, and obviously we have November midterms. Um, What's your thoughts around the the inflation? Inflation elements, obviously, we'll talk a little bit about Europe and other places, but maybe in the US first, and what we think the bond market reaction may be to that. Yeah, it's, it's obviously a really interesting subject. So inflation was really out of favour as a, a macro topic for a number of years, and suddenly it's jumped back right to be centre stage in terms of the economic debate. And um, I think it certainly showed it for us, and I think a large number of other commentators and, and economists the inflation rate around the world have, uh, you know, inflation rates around the world have been higher and more persistent than we were expecting. Um, nonetheless, uh, you know, we we do think that there are reasons to expect um, inflation to slow down later this year, although the first half of the year may continue to remain uh, uncertain with regard to inflation. We may well see it remain elevated for a bit longer. But I think that. Um, over time, the base effects are going to wash out. So the year-over-year comparisons are just going to become a bit easier. And then additionally, um, we expect supply chain um, challenges to ease. So again, it's probably something more for the second half of the year than the first half. But of course, as the supply chain starts to sort themselves out, then uh, so production will pick up and that would tend to um, put a dampener on price pressures. I think the third thing to note in that regard as well is the fact that um, energy price inflation seems to have leveled off a bit. And again, the year over year comparisons there are also going to start to look a bit more attractive and that will feed through into inflation. I think perhaps in terms of the bond market, what's what's worth noting in particular is you know, that the uh, bond yields have gone up a little bit. They're still pricing in a very benign inflation outlook over not just over the next year but actually for several years to come and you can see that in the the longer end of the yield curve Um, and i think that although you could argue that uh, bond yields are depressed a little bit by widespread central bank balance sheet expansion i think nonetheless the extent to which uh, longer term bond yields have remained low um, is indicative of the fact the market is uh, actually pricing in relatively well behaved inflation in the years ahead and then the big debate and i think this debate's going to be certainly running uh, long and hard for the next couple of quarters is what we think the peak Fed funds rate will be. Um, Obviously, at the previous cycle, the peak was at 2.5%. Any thoughts around what that could be this time around? Obviously, um, uh, also the debate of where that that would fall. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I think the the Fed itself has... um, priced in in terms of its dot plots. I think it's priced in a peak of about two and a half percent. So it's still much the same as it was last time. Um, and that's probably you know a good starting point. I think what we have to watch is um, just this inflation outlook again 
and uh, the extent to which um, it remains more persistent or not. I mean, um, you know, a concern for the Fed is uh, in particular that uh, labour market pressures result in uh, hard and anticipated wage growth, and that feeds into a sort of wage price spiral. And of course, if that were to happen, then we would expect to see the Fed be a little bit more aggressive than they have been so far. And uh, that's you know, likely to be more of a global phenomenon as well. I think um, you know, worth noting, of course, that whilst the Fed has been um, uh, a little uh, bit more hawkish recently and the Bank of England has hiked rates and indeed some emerging market central banks have hiked rates, the ECB, of course, still remains very dovish and uh, likely going to be some time uh, before the ECB starts to impart significantly tighter policy, of which uh, I'm sure we'll get more on later. So the rest of the section within the overview this is on uh, page three of the Insight uh, we talk a little bit about globalization and the emerging economies, but let's move on to asset market performance review for 2021. Obviously, it was a, a very decent year for uh, equities and we saw overall equities in, in, uh, uh, in dollar terms up around uh, just under 15%. So overall, a pretty solid a year. Uh, fixed income uh, performance was uh, obviously a little bit more mixed um, and particularly uh, in dollar terms for um, um, for European and um, Japanese and Japanese bonds in particular actually were, were quite weak in, in dollar terms. But overall, the fixed income markets had a pretty tough time in local currency terms as well. Um, and certainly so far, at least in the first few days of 2022, it looks like that is not improving uh, just yet. Um, and uh, certainly we'll, we'll, we'll see how that uh, develops further. Within the um, overall regional equity markets, it was very much about the US and being overweight in the US. And, and even further, uh, there was a big disparity between small and mid-sized companies versus large cap growth companies that continue to dominate narrative in uh, 2021. Uh, however, as you shifted towards the more developing world, um, you know, returns started to deteriorate. Um, and, you know, certainly the, um, the, the emerging markets of kind of Brazil and China certainly found it a lot harder. China, as we've discussed, many times before was very much driven by the very heavily overweighted tech sector and regulation around the tech sector. And that certainly uh, deemed it to be a, quite a tricky time for Chinese equities. Hopefully that will improve in 2022. Uh, so moving then on to um, the US economy, I think we, we've tackled some of this um, already, but um, Daniel, any comment you want to make? Um, I guess more about some of our concerns around, you know, maybe the Fed is too aggressive in raising interest rates in, in 2022 and, and that causes a mistake. Yeah, that, that's a clear risk for, uh, for the year ahead is that the Fed in, in China get uh, ahead of the curve again, that it, it hikes rates too aggressively and it, it uh, some of its policy moves. I think, um, you know, the Fed has done a great job over the pandemic in terms of signaling to markets what it's going to do and uh but you know clearly in this end game it's uh it's facing a lot of uncertainty lots of mixed signals labor market is very tight cross currents from omicron has got the global environment to think about um and so on and so forth and uh so uh 
you know, something that we're going to be watching closely is uh, you know, the appetite of the Fed, you know, to hike rates and whether or not they um, they do so too quickly. I think um, clearly us and other people are watching the labor market very closely in the US for signals. The Fed has indicated that it, um, you know, it will start to hike when it thinks it's at the US economy is at full employment. And uh, according to their latest statements, they think that we're more or less there. Um, and uh, so I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect some rate hikes. The question is, how far and how fast do they go? And do they get caught in the trap of uh, extrapolating forward too aggressively and uh, uh, you know, not taking into account the fact that these things will naturally calm down as the year progresses? So let's move on to page six, which is the UK. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the, um, uh, about the MPC and uh, the endless source of amusement within the macro team of Andrew Bailey's comments. So Daniel, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about um, Andrew Bailey and uh, stagflation? So uh, Andrew Bailey has um, cemented the reputation of the governor of the Bank of England being an unreliable boyfriend, which was something applied to his predecessor, Mark Carney. Um, but uh, I think Andrew Bailey has even outdone Mark Carney in this respect in terms of signaling to the market. And the latest um, communications we've had from the governor is that uh, stagflation is not a word we use, which is interesting because a lot of other people are using it in the context of the UK. Now, I think um, what's interesting is that in contrast, perhaps, with expectations and with some of the commentary you might read in the press, stagflation is a pretty unusual occurrence. It's, it's only really been uh, a few uh, periods during which it's occurred in the past, and uh, two of those were associated with um, quite large oil price shocks, which were really political events more than market events. They obviously had market implications, but they were and, and long-term economic implications, but they were largely political in terms of the underlying causes. So I think it, it's a very different situation now. I think you know we do expect to see the word stagflation banded about increasingly uh, with regard to the UK. Um, over the next few months. But actually, longer term, we're not too concerned about it becoming a major problem, at least not in the traditional sense. We may well see inflation um, moving a bit higher. One would naturally expect growth to slow as the economic cycle matures. And of course, as the UK faces additional head headwinds from uh, uh, other factors such as Brexit, but, you know, in aggregate, we, uh, we don't expect stagflation to be a major problem. So uh, let's... Uh cross the channel and um, move to Stefan and uh, the Eurozone. So um, obviously inflation has been a short-term concern and obviously we've had um, some elevation due to VAT in Germany and so on and so forth. So maybe Stefan, a quick, quick review of um, inflation and indeed um, the ECB's thinking around it. Yes, um, the um, the average inflation rate uh, uh, for 2021, as Madame Lagarde pointed out in her uh, in the most recent ECB meeting on December 16th, was 2.8 percent for the year as a, as a total. That's the average of the, of the inflation rate for each month. The ECB forecast is to pick up for for 2022 to 3.2 percent. But I think inflation will be below the 2% target in 2023 and 2024. It forecasts 1.8% for both those years. So in terms of headline inflation, the ECB has seen inflation picking up very strongly um, uh, this um, uh, last year and, and, and expects uh, it to be even higher this year. 
but to a very great extent that uh, reflects just the energy price increases if you look at the same numbers for core that is inflation taking out energy prices and food prices then inflation in 2021 was 1.4% in 2022, the ECB forecasts 1.9%, that is less than 2%, 1.7% in 2023 and 1.6% in 2024. So the ECB's analysis is that this uh, is, is largely a price level shocks coming from, from particularly from energy prices. Um, it is certainly true that the ECB does not seem to be very keen to um, to tighten uh, monetary policy and plainly one reason for that is that it anticipates inflation below target in 2023 and 2024 and as uh, as is well known monetary policy impacts on inflation with a long lag in many cases we uh, we anticipate the the time lag before inflation really hits and really responds to monetary policy to be something like two years and if you anticipate inflation to be below target in two years' time, well, that doesn't, then it really doesn't make sense to tighten monetary policy now. And I think the other concern the ECB has, and it also is very clear in the monetary policy decision in January, and that is that the ECB will scale back its, its PEP, its, its emergency purchase program, uh, pandemic emergency program of, of bonds. It will end this in March and uh, then return to buying uh, bonds uh, at the order of 40 uh, billion, excuse me, 20 billion uh, a month uh, there, thereafter. And that could put a lot of pressure on some of these uh, uh, countries in Southern Europe, in particular Greece. But there, the ECB announced that in in um, reinvesting bonds that mature, they could favor disproportionately some countries. Um, so I think this view is that inflation is the largest temporary phenomenon. It is, uh, it is, uh, it is due to energy prices. Inflation is going to fall back, and tightening monetary policy is going to put pressure on the south of Europe, and that's uh, um, that's uh, that would be undesirable. Thanks, uh, thanks, Stefan. So, so suggesting that uh, rates are really not going to move for the foreseeable future. Certainly, probably does on a relative basis. If the Fed is indeed raising rates and Europe is not, certainly does uh, suggest more support for financial asset prices than uh, certainly the US does. Uh, so let's 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 um, climb over the Alps into Switzerland and um, to uh, to Gianluigi. Uh, Gianluigi, it's a piece that you've written. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, my, my thought about the Swiss economy is that indeed it weathered the, the, the recent crisis and the, the supply chain bottlenecks in particular better than its uh, trading peers. And that is probably reflected in the large trade surplus, which itself supports uh, a strong currency and uh, allows for uh, an overall lower inflation rate in Switzerland than, and than elsewhere. And that, as the Swiss National Bank stressed uh, after the last uh, um, monetary policy meeting in mid-December, underpins the, the strength of the currency, which makes it uh, less of a reason for the SMB to react to the currency strength, while at the same time, it makes uh, uh, quite likely that the SMB will keep rates at the current level for uh, quite some time. And possibly uh, at least uh, until at least the ECB moves itself, which um, uh, we we don't expect to happen in the near future. Uh, that is interesting because, of course, 
uh, if you look at back at the period when there was a large differential uh, in inflation rates between Switzerland and uh, the other large countries like Germany or the US uh, in the 70s that happened. And during that period, the Swiss franc appreciated strongly against the US dollar and the Deutsche Mark, which was, of course, the, the reference for, for European currencies before before the Eurozone and, and the Euro um, uh, came over. And that leads to, I think, that possibly the parity on also on the Euro to Swiss franc exchange rate is only a matter of time before it is reached. And that in and of itself will not be a major issue as long as it reflects uh, the underlying fundamentals of the two economies. That, of course, would have been unthinkable only a few years ago. But it looks now much more like a natural macroeconomic development. And that is quite interesting indeed. Something very interesting. Um, the uh, Swiss franc has certainly weathered this uh, period actually rather well. And you can see that in chart 22 very, very nicely. Um, moving then on to um, Latin America and uh, uh, Joaquin, why don't you take us through the Latin America outlook. So, yeah, so Latin America was uh, one of the regions that was uh, worst affected by uh, by COVID in in 2020, and it made like a, a good recovery in 2021 with very very high uh, growth rates. But now, is these are expected now to uh, come down again, similar to uh, the pre-pandemic average that, that we've seen before. Um, in some cases, uh, quite a lot of differences be- between between countries. However, I think there's a lot of pessimism around uh, Brazil that, uh, in, in in our opinion, is, is a bit overdone. Uh, the country has entered now its fourth uh, recession since uh, 2015, and the forecast uh, growth for um, for 2022 has already been uh, downgraded to just over um, uh, over one percent. Um, however, there there's some aspects that lead us to think that this could be it could be a, a a positive uh, surprise in in terms of Brazil and also Brazilian assets. The first thing, and is despite this uh, this being uh, an election year, uh, both um, uh, main candidates uh, Lula and President Bolsonaro and are well known risks, uh, and this is already priced in into the price of Brazilian assets. Any third candidate that would join this uh, this race uh, would probably be welcomed by markets, and any um, uh, increase in the, in, the, in the polls would also be reflected in, in Brazilian asset prices. It is true that interest rates have risen sharply uh, as a result of the tightening of monetary policy uh, and as a response to that high inflation that was registered in, in the country, but this is also a welcome sign of the independence of the central bank and a sign that institutions in Brazil have worked uh, during the Bolsonaro administration, which was something that in the initial perception was that he was going to run the country in a more authoritarian way. And that has not happened. Uh, and we now expect um, uh, inflation to come down as a result of that large monetary tightening from the, from the central bank. The other part is that uh, at the same time, uh, fiscal uh, policy has been managed quite responsibly. The level of debt increased as a percent of GDP in, in 2020 as the nom- nominal GDP contracted. Um, and once it recovered, this ratio returned to more um, normal levels seen uh, previous to, to the pandemic. The government spending has also been limited, uh, given that there has a fiscal rule that could not allow it to, to grow in, in real terms. Uh, this rule was suspended in 2020 uh, to allow for that emergency spending, and also in 2021. And this is unlikely to be done again in 2022 given that this is an election year. Uh, the fiscal balance will be returning to its pre-pandemic 
um, average um, with the primary fiscal deficit just below 2%. Uh, and while in, in this case, the, the, the bigger increase would be on the in, uh, high interest payments that will weigh on the overall fiscal deficit expected to reach around uh, just over 6%. And finally, after a slow start, uh, the country has, has made uh, some considerable progress in terms of controlling the spread of, of COVID-19. And this has been attributed to two main things. The first one is the high vaccination uptake from the population. This is something that is uh, very characteristic of, of, of Brazil in general. Uh, they have very high vaccination rates for a lot of different um, uh, pandemics and, and diseases. And in this case, it's no, it's no difference. But also the second part is that the high supply of vaccines given that they started to produce the AstraZeneca vaccine domestically in, in Brazil, which has sped up the sourcing of sufficient doses. Uh, and this has been the result of the policy of the fourth um, health minister they've had over the last two years, which, uh, which finally got the, the pandemic under control. Uh, so overall, we think that the pessimism might be a bit overdone and we could see some positive surprises coming from Brazil this year. Thanks, uh, Joaquin. Very optimistic uh, view of uh, of Latin America, and uh, I guess certainly relative to expectations, that is uh, that is pretty uh, pretty positive. Uh, so let's move on to uh, Asia, and um, and uh, and to Paul, uh, who's going to help us see out the next two uh, items. You'll notice I did switch. Uh, uh, Latin America and Asia together, really to to bring um, Paul in together with Asia. So, Paul, I guess the same same old same old with with respect to China. Yes, the same old concerns. I mean, what we say is that there've been periodic concerns about a slowdown in China. I mean, I remember it. You know, two thousand and one after the dot com boom turned to bust every seven years or so, and just as Joaquim has talked about in Latin America, what we had was a a big hit from COVID, a big recovery, and now it's a return to slower growth rates. Um, I mean, if you look at chart 23, I mean, drawing a straight line sort of from the trend from 2008, it's a, it's a gradual slowdown in sort of China's growth, which seems to be a fairly consensus uh, call. But, you know, there's three issues in the short term, COVID, uh, construction and, and credit, COVID, the zero COVID strategy, I mean, you've seen Australia, for example, ease its zero COVID strategy. Would China do something like that after the Olympics? I wouldn't pretend to know any better than anyone else. That is the, that is the story. Um, there's also a bit of a concern about the vaccines used, that they might not be as effective against Omicron in China. Uh, again, that's more of a medical question. So as credit and construction are concerned, two interrelated items. We've got a chart showing home sales and new construction down about 20% year on year. I mean, it's a big contraction. Um, and the question is, what might you be able to do to sort of turn that around in terms of policy easing? Um, it looks to me as though some of the stories post GFC that we had in the US and the UK are echoing in China. And one slightly detailed point recently is that banks don't want to lend. Um, and it was actually banks' unwillingness to lend that turned, you know, the subprime crisis into a global crisis. And the current manifestation of that in China is that banks don't want to lend, but there are lending quotas and amounts they should lend because we have state-controlled banks after all. 
But what they're doing instead is buying short-term commercial bills, which sort of count as lending, but aren't really lending. They're scared of lending. And if that's the case, I'm more worried about how this credit workout might happen. So it might be more, we always think it's gonna, we've always thought it's gonna be more protracted, um, more of a Japanese type of workout, banks unwilling to lend, government support, obfuscating the issue. And that doesn't look good. And then we add sort of two longer term concerns about China. Um, I don't really like using the word corruption, but I always turn to the corruption perception indices that Transparency International put out. It'll be updated recently. Basically, China and India are in the same category. So a low low score, meaning corruption is perceived to be high, and at a level which is an impediment to growth in the long term. Um, now that's just, it's an interesting sort of number and it's interesting scoring, but the two economies that have driven emerging market growth, China and India, still have issues on that front. And the other one, you know, China's demographics, which we also turn to in the special focus section. I mean, people will have heard that you are now allowed to have three children uh, in China. And of course, we had the one child policy in 1979, the two child policy in 2016, now the three child policy. Uh, <laughs> it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. You know, please go and have three children. It's not really sort of something that is possible as a effective tool of policy in very many countries. I mean, France did it after the after World War II with generous sort of amounts of raising children and so on. But I just think, uh, no, I just don't really see it. And I think, Mose, you've correctly pointed out that Dick Hawkinson's work has linked housing and housing costs to the number of kids that people have. It's really expensive to live in a city in China, and it is, and housing, despite what we've seen, is still very expensive. Uh, you're not going to suddenly have loads of loads of children. So anyway, that's uh, I, I. So I don't like putting a chart on the fertility rate. It sounds too biological, but I think it does actually get to the point about the longer term restraints on growth. And then on the special focus, we take that a bit further. And what I've just plotted there is the decline in the population of working age. And I take Japan as the standard from 1995. So how much has its population declined since 1995? Well, getting on for 20%. And if you plot China uh, from its uh, uh, recent peak, it follows the same trajectory. There's not much you can do about it. So it, it is a population trend which looks like Japan's almost certainly. Um, the peripheral Eurozone looks the same. And so it, the US and India are in a different category, and that's important. But you've even got people like Elon Musk, most famous. He always says controversial things, doesn't he? And we can probably ignore most of them. But I mean, he said we are going to run out of skilled workers in the world because we're just not having enough children and there won't be enough people to produce Tesla cars. 
And that goes along with this other big issue, Mose, which you've raised, and you've picked out a number of pieces on this, the Great Resignation. Um, I was astonished looking at some of the work that the Richmond Fed had done on this. Uh, you know, the idea is that people have not returned to the workforce post-COVID for a number of reasons, uh, difficulties with childcare. I'm sorry, we've mentioned children ever such a lot, haven't we? I don't know why we're talking about children all the time on this podcast now towards the end. It's probably that uh, Elon Musk has six of them, right? So he's probably, probably the only one who can actually afford that many. Probably, <laughs> I think so, six. Yeah, and apparently the story is that he built his first Tesla to accommodate all his children with sort of very wide seats in the back, get all the kids in. Anyway, never mind. Um, the work from the Richmond Fed says actually it just comes down predominantly to the amount of cash people got uh, in compensation for COVID. Uh, two trillion in total cash payments, about $16,000 per household on average. And well-off households didn't get anything, anybody earning over $75,000. That's a big chunk of cash for a lot of US households. Now, I mean, our central view is that gets spent eventually, you know, on as consumer spending sort of picks up. But it's also been a disincentive to re-enter the, the labour market. I see Goldman Sachs did something on us reaching a similar conclusion as well. Uh, I talked to Akim about this. In Chile, the participation ratio has fallen by 11%, which is astonishing. Um, uh, and then in Europe, again, this is something, those that you've pointed out, the Morgan Stanley work, which we've all talked about a great deal. And their survey of European uh, consumers, European earners, workers, and more than a third of them want to quit uh, their jobs because they are earning extra money from being Instagram influencers, uh, trading books on eBay uh, and uh, trading NFTs and Bitcoin. And so they aspire to leave their jobs sometime in the next year or two. Uh, uh, excuse my sceptical note. I mean, they aspire to, I'm not sure this will ever work, but it's another thing which argues for the participation rate staying low. So in other words, we've got a declining population or working age population in, uh, in China, uh, in peripheral Europe, uh, in Japan, and even in the US where working age population is projected to rise, maybe people don't want to work so much any longer. And that's a problem in terms of longer term growth. It's a very, very interesting discussion. Um, and, I, and I always recall going back to Dick Hawkinson's work yep. around um, uh, around the cost of housing. So when interest rates uh, are higher, your cost of housing obviously goes up, which means that you are forced to go out and get a job and work to, to be able to pay for uh, the housing um, uh, or the housing cost, and and um, and that also has impact on on childbirth and so on and so forth as well. It's a it's a very very interesting uh, debate and discussion, and certainly that has been the trend over the over the course of the last you know, thirty or forty years. Um, that uh, you know birth rates and how 
how uh, people have decided that they're no longer going to spend as much money on the housing um, uh, and has worked out. I think there is another interesting development, which, um, you know, certainly maybe this is for a, a different or another podcast is around uh, millennials and Gen Z's habits as millennials have now um, uh, have graduated from their apartments in the center of town to now having children and um, uh, buying houses in, in suburbs and working from home and so on and so forth. Um, and, and that uh, has, has changed preferences uh, as well for the type of housing stock that's needed. And certainly um, a lot of the uh, home builders in the US and elsewhere have talked actually in quite a lot of detail about how that's changing but then we have a new um group called the gen z's they're also going to have a you know a very different outlook on life and i think certainly they are more likely to give up work and and work from you know instagram or or, or now the metaverse uh, as well so um so uh, again very interesting i i i did hear a joke about the price of property on the metaverse being greater than the actual price of a house which i think is quite amusing but um, um but uh you know uh, who knows whether indeed that will ever happen but uh, never say no um so paul thank you very much for uh, for for that and uh, again um uh, my thanks to the rest of the macro team for walking us through our quarterly insight uh just a quick reminder um, our quarterly insight is there, a little icon you can download and you can listen to the podcast and follow with the document itself. Uh, so with that, um, we will uh, stop there. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening in. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time.